Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode three in the book of John, titled, Come and See Jesus, from John chapter one, verses 35 through 51. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, this is our final podcast in the prologue of John's Gospel, chapter one, and we just finished talking about how John pointed out Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In this text, he's going to point him out again, and then Jesus is going to start calling his disciples. Are there some things you want to highlight before we go through it verse by verse? Absolutely. This is the beginning of the church. We have the beginning of people, by faith, attracted to Jesus and following him. It's the beginning of a multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation who have heard his voice, as Jesus will later say in the same gospel, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. So these are people that are beginning to follow Jesus and beginning to have a relationship with him. And it's really an, an amazing section because John omits so many things from his gospel that are in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they're not here. And so he's very filtered, very concentrated, and yet he includes a pretty seems like a humdrum encounter between Jesus and a couple of people when they just kind of come and see who he is. But it isn't humdrum at all because this is really the essence of what Christ has done, called us in the midst of our lives to follow him and live life with him, to have a relationship with him, to do everything we do with him, to eat and drink and serve and work and just grow old even, raise our kids with Jesus step by step. And so that, that fellowship, and then how much more eternally in heaven to have intimacy with Christ in heaven. So all that just kind of flowers out from these early disciples wanting to come and see who Jesus is. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that, come and see. I've often, as I read the Gospel of John, I've often conceived of John's Gospel as an invitation for us to come and see him. And so here we have that in this text. It's going to be fantastic. Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'm going to read verses 35 through 51. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him for that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go into Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So my first question to you after reading that section is, what is a disciple? Because it mentions that John was standing with two of his disciples. Mm-hmm. So it seems that John had gathered around him some, some men who were with John the Baptist and spending time with him and learning from his doctrine, maybe off hours, uh, maybe when the crowds went away, they would stick around and he would eat with them and spend time with them, uh, et cetera, and they would learn. So simply put, a disciple is a learner, but it's not just somebody in a classroom. It's a kind of a whole life learner, somebody who effectively has left his ordinary life and is being mentored or sitting at the feet in every respect, just learning from the, um, the teacher. And so disciples are followers, uh, whole life followers. They are learners, it's true. There is doctrine, there is content, but there's also that uh, role modeling, follow me, that kind of thing. What is the effect of John's uh, preaching and pointing out of Jesus on these disciples? And how do we know from scripture how John felt about them leaving him and following Jesus? Yeah, well, we're going to find out much more clearly in John chapter 3, so we'll get to that. Uh, he's thrilled. He, he says, look, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. Uh, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. It's the wedding day for the bridegroom. Uh, my job is just to be the friend of the bridegroom who celebrates the bride and the bridegroom getting together. And, and looking even larger in the New Testament, we know that the bride refers to the church, the followers of Christ. And so they, they came, um, the, sorry, John came to prepare the way for Jesus being the bridegroom, being the savior, the one who they would focus their attention, their love and their hearts on. And so when that's actually happening, he's done his job. So actually, to some degree, he came to prepare the way and he got these disciples ready to be followers of Jesus. And Jesus was infinitely greater than John the Baptist, far greater. Um, But he did a great job getting these early disciples ready. And I think the writer of this gospel, the apostle John, uh, is one of them. And so he had already somewhat broken with his ordinary life and was being mentored by John the Baptist. But the time had come for that to end. And for this, this one, John, uh, John, the Apostle John, the writer of the gospel, to follow Jesus instead. So I think he was totally, John the Baptist, totally thrilled. And we'll find out later in chapter yeah, 3. Yeah, we'll find more in chapter 3 where he says, He must increase and I must Amen. decrease, which Amen. is a profound statement. I think also just the fact that these disciples left John to follow Jesus is actually a testament to the success of John's ministry, that they actually believed what he said and they were ready to leave when, when the Lamb of God came. Yeah, I think one of the things we're going to see in this is this, the role of, of people, friends, family members, bringing other people to Jesus. It's a role we still play. People that uh, we might have unsaved friends or unsaved relatives, and we want to bring them to Jesus. We want effectively to say, come and see, come see who Jesus is. And so we're going to see some of that too. But John the Baptist definitely got ready, got John, the Apostle John, and other disciples ready to follow Jesus. And, and that's by his clear assertion the, the day before this account, pointing a finger at Jesus and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. I, I can't imagine what it was like that night for these guys who had been following John. It's like, who is this guy? 
And John's been talking about him. The one coming after me is greater than I am. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He's saying all these things, but maybe the day has come finally to meet him. And so they're all excited about it. So the next day comes and they're ready. Hmm. So he points them out again, behold the Lamb of God. I'm not going to ask you any questions about that because we addressed that last week. So if you're listening and you want to know more about the Lamb of God, please listen to the previous podcast. But verse 37 says, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Mm. And then verse 38 says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? Now, what is the spiritual significance of this question of Jesus asking them, what are you seeking? Yeah, it's, it was really powerful. And I'm, I'm glad you zeroed in on it. And it's, it's ironic, these are Jesus' first spoken words in the Gospel of John. So you know, it's, it's, it's quite a significant moment here in the Gospel of John. It's the first thing that I think that John probably, I don't know 100% sure that John's included in this little vignette, but I think he was, um, that John uh, heard Jesus say, and uh, it's, it's very important. It reminds me of the blind man who's calling out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns aside and comes and stands in front of this blind man and says, what do you want? And it's like everybody in the crowd knew what this blind man wanted. He wanted to be able to see. But Jesus makes him voice his desires. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So the idea here is that he makes us say what we want. He crystallizes our desires. Frankly, when we share the gospel and we do a good job explaining God, man, Christ response, we go through the basic parts of the gospel. The response section, I leave it to the people. You know, I I say, okay, we've come to the point. You know everything you need to know about God and his holiness, that he created the world, all of that aspect that we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need a savior. Jesus is the savior. We've talked about all that, talked about heaven and hell. Now we've come to the point where you have to make a decision. Well, what do I do, they say? Well, talk to Jesus. Well, what should I say? Ask him for what you want. What do you want? Well, I don't know. Should we go back over the content we just talked about? Oh, all right, all right. I want to go to heaven and not hell. Okay, then ask him. <laughs> so he, he makes us vocalize what we want. So it's more than just a simple statement. Like, what do you want? Um, but he's, he's saying, what is it you're looking for? So their response is rabbi, which the text clarifies means teacher. So they don't understand that he's the son of God, yet they don't understand that he's the Messiah, although it seems one of them is starting to get it. And ask him where he's staying. Why ask him where he's staying? I don't know. It could be they don't know what to say. I mean, what are you going to say to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Jesus, the Son of God. I mean, what do you say? It's like, hi, having a good day? You know, I don't know what you, what you would say. So, but the implication is that Jesus understood what they want. And his answer will give a sense of what it is that's going on there. They're saying, we want to stay with you. We want to spend some time with you. We want to be with you. It's the very thing he wanted too. And so I think based on his answer, we have a sense of it. Now the question comes across here, and I I hinted at it earlier, but I want to say it right here and now. I I had underestimated this section. I always thought it was a little little humdrum. It's like, how did this make it into the Gospel of John? But I think if this actually is John that wrote this, and he was one of the two disciples that heard John say these words, This would have been John's first encounter with Jesus. 
first time. And he's like, this is, this is my gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's gospel, too. It's God's gospel, but it's mine, too. I'm going to tell my story. And this, I will never forget. I will never forget the day I met, I met Jesus. I'll never forget the first time he spoke to me. I'll never forget what it was like to spend that afternoon with him and to eat and probably a meal. It doesn't say that they did, but probably they did, and just have that time. And so it's really kind of an awesome thing. And I think all of us have that sense. I'll never forget the first time that I knew Christ was in my life by the Holy Spirit. So it's pretty sweet. You know, so that, I think they just wanted to be with him. Yeah. So then he tells them to come. He says, come and you will see. So what do you make of that invitation? Well, it's got a simple level, just the simple physical level is uh, you ask where I'm saying, no, staying, come and see. And so there's that. So it just practically gets the job done. Come along with me. He's inviting them to spend time. But, you know, by the end of the, the chapter, he's saying things that are infinitely more glorious than this. He said, you've seen this. Wait till you see that. So come and you will see. It's like I'm going to show you everything I have to show you including heaven itself. So the whole thing, and it's, it's, just, it's just an awesome thing. Come and you'll see. If John actually is this one of these two disciples, the, the Apostle John, and if John actually did, as I believe, write the book of Revelation, and if Jesus, the one who appears to him in resurrection glory in Revelation 1, is the very same one who called to him in Revelation 4 with a door standing open to heaven, come up here and I will show you things that must take place after this. And he comes up from earth into heaven and sees the glory of God and God seated on a throne. It's like come and see takes whole new dimensions of meaning. I've got some things to show you you would never believe. So come follow me and you will see. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think there, there are more come and see passages. Uh, there's the come and buy and eat from Isaiah. Is it 56? 55, 55, yeah. 55, and then the end of Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. So I was thinking of this in connection to Jesus saying you have to become like a child to mm -hmm. enter the kingdom of God. I can imagine someone saying, come and see, and a child wanting to, I want to come and see. But sometimes adult skeptics are like, I don't yeah. want to see that. I'm yeah. not interested. Yeah, you know? there's nothing there. But, but the children believe so it's going to be something exciting. Yeah. And so, uh, and it is. I can't imagine anything uh, more glorious than the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth described in Revelation 21, 22. And we know we're seeing through a glass darkly. It's just words. But someday we'll see with our own eyes. Yeah. So in verse 40, the Apostle John tells us that one of the two disciples who heard John and speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Mm -hmm. And what is his response to hearing John the Baptist proclaim that this is Jesus and then seeing this invitation from Jesus? Well, he goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter, uh, who's, he gets the name Peter later from Jesus, but this is included in the account, so we just know who we're talking about. So obviously, given, given Peter's significance in the early life of the church, he was the, the first really leader among the, in the church. And, um, you know, uh, in some ways, first, first among equals, the one who who always seemed to answer for the apostles. You are the Christ, the Son of God. This is Peter, the leader, the one who got up on Pentecost and preached on behalf of all of them. Um, just just uh, the apostle to the, to the Jews. And, and so Andrew is his brother, and he brought you know, Simon Peter to Jesus. Think about that. So you think about the great men of, of God, like John Bunyan, brought to faith by, among others, but some, some women, some townswomen that were there that were talking about Jesus. Uh, or whoever it is that brought Billy Graham to Christ, and then little did I know that this this young man would eventually preach to literally millions, um, and and just it's pretty impressive. So Andrew's greatest contribution seems to be bringing his brother uh, Simon to uh, to Jesus, and he says we have found the Messiah. Oh yeah. So I uh, do you think this is a an early confession of faith, 
or maybe you could explain what their understanding of Messiah was at the time? Well, that's going to get a, an infinite upgrade. They were all thinking son of David, all right, thinking a human Messiah, a human anointed one who would come and be a human king. So Jesus challenges this understanding when he said even to his enemies, but the disciples heard it too. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Oh, the son of David. They said, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies a footstool for your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? And they had no answer. And I wonder if the disciples were like, had no answer. And they're like, I don't really fully understand who you are. And so they got an education in the deity of Christ throughout this gospel. By the end of it, they really understood that Jesus was God the Son. But at this point, I don't know that Andrew would have had that full understanding of, of uh, Jesus as any more than the fulfillment of the prophecy that David's son would sit on the throne. What is important about Jesus renaming Peter in 42? He looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Well, I think names, uh, especially nicknames or given names, once you get to know somebody, okay, and then you see their character. So you have this definitely with Joseph the Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So in, in, in those days, son of meant somebody who embodied, just was immersed and saturated in the thing he's son of. Like Judas was the son of perdition. He's the, he's the essence of lostness. All right, that's Judas. Um, but here's, um, here's Barnabas, who's the essence of encouragement. He was the son of encouragement. So it was just, you know, here's an encouraging person. So I think most of them just called him Barnabas. It was Paul and Barnabas, not Paul and Joseph. Um, people don't know who Joseph, Paul's friend, was. Well, what Joseph are you talking about? Well, he's Barnabas. Oh, okay, I got it. So the same thing. There's a sense in which Jesus looks at at Simon and says, you are the rock. And he's going to later say, and on this rock I will build my church. And it's just an interesting interplay there. People have lots of different interpretations. But we're supposed to think of Peter in some rock-like sense. That's why he gave him the name. And so there is a sense of a foundation. Uh, as Ephesians 2 says, the Apostle Paul says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So Peter was a foundation stone, a solid rock. And in what sense? He's not a perfect person. We know that. He's, he's a, he was a sinner saved by grace. But his testimony to Christ, his ministry, his eyewitness testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ was foundational to everything that would follow. So the next day Jesus goes into Galilee and he it says he found Philip. We don't know how he found him, but he, he found him. And he says... He, he calls him. He says, follow me. And we get some background info. It says he was from Bethsaida, the same city as Peter and Andrew. And what is Philip's response to Jesus calling him? Yeah, Philip, um, you know, is, is again, he's a, he's a bringer. Um, and that's just one of the, one of the uh, themes. And we mentioned it, just being willing to go find someone else who hadn't heard of Jesus. And so I got to tell you about, about this new person I've met. And so that's just the thing we see worldwide is people come to faith in Christ and then soon they're thinking about their friends, drinking buddies maybe, college friends, co-workers, maybe Muslim relatives, a brother in a Muslim family or some other context. And they're going to go find that person and say, I've got to tell you 
about this person I've met. I've got to tell you about Jesus. So Philip goes and finds this man, Nathaniel, and uh, he wants to tell him about Jesus. And he says something incredible to Nathaniel. He says, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, the son of Joseph. Give us a few examples of how Moses in the law and the prophets wrote of Jesus of Nazareth. It's an incredible statement. Jesus is going to make the same statement in John chapter 5. It's going to get him into incredible hot water. If you believe Moses, you believe me, for he wrote about me. What, what kind of person could, what kind of Jew in the first century, you know, 15 centuries after Moses, could say, he wrote about me? It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's, it's as stunning, really, if you look at it, as stunning as the statement in John 8, before Abraham was born, I am. So I, I pre-existed Abraham. It's just an amazing assertion. Moses wrote about me. And so the idea here is, is he said, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Now, the Messiah language comes through David, okay, the anointing, the sense that kings were anointed. And so that kind of thing, whenever you talk about Christ or Messiah, I think the home base mentally would be the descendant of David, the son of David, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So David came long after Moses. So in what way did Moses write about a coming one? Well, you just have to look at what's known as like the proto-gospel or early gospel in, in um, Genesis 3, uh, when sin came into the world and there was this statement made to the serpent um, the seed, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. You know, he will, you will crush his, you will bite his foot or, or, you know, sting his foot and he will crush your head, this kind of thing. So there's this sense in which a serpent killer is going to come who's the seed of the woman. Well, that's the first prediction about Jesus. Moses wrote about that. And so then on down, the animal sacrificial system, all of it pointed toward Jesus. Deuteronomy 18 with the prophet who would come, the office of prophet would come, and along he would come and would predict. And then even the, the predictions of, um, of uh, Jacob's sons, Judah, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that language comes from the predictions that Jacob made about his own sons and what would happen in their future. So Joseph was the star of the show, but the, the savior, the ruler, would come through Judah. Yeah. The scepter will not depart, and his hand will be on the neck of his enemies. Yeah, so those, those predictions, by the way, that's clear proof that God re really did not intend to wipe out all the 12 tribes and make of, of Moses a great nation. Because those prophecies had already been given. He was just testing Moses so that he and Moses would be on completely the same page. Another statement for another day. But Moses wrote about Jesus at many levels. Everything about animal sacrifice. All the typology the of the Exodus, all about Christ. Sure. The, the ark itself. The ark is a uh, type and a symbol of Christ. You're on the ark, you're saved. You're off the ark, you're not. I mean, the cities of refuge are pictures of Jesus. There's so many symbols and types as we did in this earlier podcast uh, with the, the book of Hebrews. There's so many things you would miss. But symbolism matters. Typology matters. Shadows matter. The, the, um, the uh, tabernacle was a picture of Christ. The, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant where the blood was poured. It's a picture of the salvation Christ came to work. So Moses wrote about Jesus a lot. Yeah, and the prophets, I mean, you're a big fan of Isaiah. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, the prophets, uh, you know, well, that's everything. The, everything significant about Jesus' life was predicted by the prophets. So what's amazing is that Philip is already there. He's already there. This is, this is the one. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, that's amazing that he was already saying that this is the one wrote about. And, you know, because 
Yeah, he doesn't have a lot of information to go on right Very now. Very little. I don't think Jesus had made the amazing statement from the scroll of Isaiah yet. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, Isaiah 61. Um, Philip hadn't heard him say that yet, He's just, but he's already there. He's ready to go. Nathaniel's response is kind of interesting. He basically disparages the city that Jesus came from. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So what do you make of Nathaniel's initial response to Jesus? And again, that John recorded this in this gospel for us. Yeah, the reaction is one of disdain. And I think this is the whole thing. We're going to see it later in John's gospel where they, they cannot believe that a prophet can arise out of Galilee. Prophets don't come from Galilee. Look into it and you'll see. No prophet arises out of Galilee. Yeah, except Isaiah 9. You know, um, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. You know, that's, that's Galilee of the Jordan by the way of the sea along, along the Jordan. It's just clearly there in Isaiah 9. They must have missed it. It's like Jesus says all the time, haven't you read? Haven't you read? So, um, but Nazareth was up there in Galilee. And it just the, the attitude, it's almost like city mouse, country mouse. There's this feeling of disdain for these country bumpkins with their odd accent. You know, you're from Galilee, you got this accent. How can anything good come out of that region? Especially, it seems, Nazareth, which I don't know why it's singled out here, but it seems like nothing good can come out of there. And once again, Philip's invitation to him is... Come and see. Come and see, <laughs> yeah. Come and see. Yeah, come see, see for yourself. Yeah, you'll you know? see for yourself. It won't take long. I think it's just a great um, evangelistic method, too, is, you know, people disdaining Jesus. It's like, look, come, come and see him. Yeah. You know, come... Come hear a sermon from church. Come, come study the Gospel of John with me. Come yeah. see him. I like the C language because and it fits into the thing that I've said for the last handful of years is that faith is the eyesight of the soul and the faith comes from hearing the word. So by hearing, you see now. Someday you'll see with your own eyes. Not by hearing, but literally by seeing. And when you see him, you'll be made like him. You'll be transformed. Right now, it's come and see in the, in the, in the Scripture. Yeah. Come and see, you know, before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. How? In the preaching. So the word gives us a spiritual eyesight, the eyes of your heart enlightened, Ephesians 1 says, through the ministry of the word. Then, however, it was indeed physical. So for us to come and see, you come to the scriptures and you really are hearing and then seeing. By yeah, exactly. Jesus makes an interesting statement about Nathaniel as he's on the way. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. What do you make of Jesus' assessment of Nathanael? Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's not like, uh, here is an Israelite indeed wearing a tan and gray tunic. I mean, anybody can see that. This, here's an Israelite indeed who, who seems to not need any kind of headwear on a hot day. You know, those things you can see on the surface. They're just surface things. As was said concerning... Uh, the Messiah, uh, the anointed king, not the Messiah, but the anointed king, uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Jesus is God. He looks at the heart. This is nothing you can tell by glancing at someone. Here is a, a true Israelite. So in other words, this is what I think of when I think of a son of Abraham, a son of Isaac, and a son of Jacob. This is what I always wanted in the Israelite nation. Someone like this in whom there is no guile, there's no deceit, there's no treachery. Treachery. He is what he appears to be. But Jesus just is able to give this searching evaluation. So I guess to me it goes to, you know, Revelation 1 where it says that Jesus has eyes of blazing fire. He sees everything. And so in Revelation 2 and 3 you have the letters to the seven churches and he just says, I know you. 
I know your deeds, your hard work. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, but I have this against you. He just knows everybody. And Nathaniel's an example of that. Yeah, it seemed to really resonate and, and affect him deeply. Yeah. How do you know me? He says. And Jesus' answer is amazing. He says, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. That's how I knew you. Just by looking at you, I know you. And so it's just amazing. Jesus just looks at people and knows them. He knows everything about them. Is there any historical context to this fig tree? Do we know why? Is that important? I don't think so. Maybe some others would. Maybe some of those symbolic, you know, uh, was it Alexandrian interpretation types, you know, with the, with the sevenfold meaning would find something in the fig tree. I think it's just where he was. He was just physically there. You were under a fig tree, and I was walking by. I looked at you, and I know that in you there's no guile. So while you're just leaning with your back against the fig tree, maybe eating a fig, I saw you then. So that's all I take, take it from. I, if, if there's more there, I don't know. I can't say for sure. Yeah. Well, as I said, it affected Nathaniel very deeply because he makes this incredible confession. And he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel, wow. which is very significant for us in the Gospel of John, right? Yeah. But it comes so early. And uh, what, did, what was Jesus' response to this? Yeah, it's an incredible confession, but again, I think as often happens with all of the genuine believers who make early confessions, they don't really know what they're talking about. They don't have the full dimensions of it. Even John the Baptist didn't have the full dimensions of what Christ had come to do. So he's a bit a bit taken aback um, and a bit surprised. I mean, John was by looking at what was actually happening. And Nathaniel, all of them had a journey to travel. So it was words, they were true, but Nathaniel didn't quite fully understand. And he says, look, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus' answer to him is, effectively, you don't really know what you're talking about. Because of this little thing, you make such a great confession. And so it's, it's almost like, now here's a remarkable thing. Now we know Jesus in his omniscience really is never truly surprised. But he's saying this is an amazing answer that with so little evidence, so little, you know who I am. You don't really know who I am, but someday you will. That's okay. where he's heading. I'm going to give you more evidence for this confession. Far right? more. <laughs> so that brings us to the last verse. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Yeah. This is a significant mm. image. What yeah. does this take us back to in Genesis? Yeah, I mean, I love it. Jesus says you're going to see. We, we've been talking throughout this whole podcast today on come and see, come and see. And he's saying, look, you're going to see infinitely greater things than this. You're going to see amazing things. And then, as you mentioned, this image is a bit strange. The, the vocabulary, the actual grammar is strange where he says, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, you say, uh, I say to you. This is what he uses. It's a verbal formula he uses again and again for something really important. You're going to see heaven open. So again, that goes back to my earlier comment from Revelation 4, a doorway standing open in heaven. Or Jesus at his baptism earlier in, in Mark's gospel, heaven was torn open. So there is a, an opening. You're going to see an opening for you, Nathaniel. You're going to see um, a, a way to get from, from earth to heaven. You're going to see a stairway to heaven. Now, of course, that image brings us back to, uh, to Jacob, asleep on holy ground on Bethel, in Bethel, what he called the house of God, where he has an awesome dream. And um, God appears to him uh, over this, this ladder, Jacob's ladder, so to speak, or stairway um, that goes from earth up to heaven um, or from heaven down to earth. 
and these angels are ascending and descending on this ladder or stairway. And it's an awesome vision. And from the top of the stairway, God, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, calls down to him and effectively offers him a covenant and charges him to walk in holiness and promises him the same promise as was made to Abraham. To you and to your offspring, I'll give this land. And so this was the promise to be as he was Abraham's God, to be Jacob's God. And Jacob woke up and said, how awesome is this place? I didn't realize what kind of place this was. This is none other than the, than the gateway to heaven. This is the doorway into heaven right here. Um, and he sets up a pillar and pours some oil on it and makes a deal with God. You know, if you will be with me and if you know, it's like you, got, you don't make deals with God. But anyway, that's his reaction. And he pours oil on, on the pillar and, and all that. Just an amazing account. Jesus is clicking into that. He's reminding that and says, the stairway to heaven is me. It's I am the stairway to heaven. I am the way that we go from earth up to heaven. That's the way by which sinners like you will will ascend to heaven. And the angels ascend and descend effectively on me. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. But it, it's basically under my authority, by my command, to do my bidding, to serve my people. I am the stairway to heaven. Just like you'll later say, I'm the bread of life. I am the living water. I am all these things. I am the stairway. Yeah, it's an incredible image. Yeah, fulfillment of all that God was doing for just generation after generation. Do you have any final comments on this section and how it fits into the prologue and to the Gospel of John? Sure. I think another verse comes to mind about the stairway to heaven, and that's one of the most famous verses in John's Gospel, John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has said, you know the way to the place where I am going. Jesus said, I am the way. And so this whole thing's about about travel and coming and being with Jesus. Come and see where you're staying. Jesus is staying in heaven eternally, and he's inviting us through faith in him to come to where he is staying. And he is the way to get from, from sinful, corrupt earth up to pure, holy heaven, the new heaven, new earth, the new Jerusalem. He is the way. And so I'm excited to continue to make this journey. Uh, we're beginning to talk about Jesus' public ministry, and that's what's going to carry us through the next many chapters of Jesus actually assembling believers in the context of people that are hostile and unbelievers to follow Christ forever. Well, thank you, Andy. That was episode three in the book of John. Please join us next time for episode four, where we will discuss the wedding and the temple from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 25. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.